Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, it's just gone 11 minutes past two on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon after uh, torrential rains just a short while ago here in Joburg. And uh, great to be back in your company. And it's on Judaism 101.9, of course, with Rabbi Michael Katz coming to you live from Joburg, albeit still remotely um, broadcasting from the studio in my office uh, which is no studio at all, but it's great to be with you and great to be able to share some thoughts with you on this special Erev Rosh Chodesh tonight and tomorrow, tomorrow night and the next day are the days of Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh being the beginning of a brand new month. And as we have explained before, the beginnings and the ends of our months, um, according to the lunar calendar, part of uh, the Jewish calendar system, are always celebrated. And they have a great impact on our lives. The idea of a rosh, the idea of a head that controls, the idea of the head controlling the body, controlling all the organs, everything within it. So too, as we always hear about the Rosh Hashanah being the day of control, so to speak, of the entire year, Rosh Chodesh has this control over this element of this particular month. And the particular month that we're talking about is not any month at all. It is the month of Adar Hasheni, or Adar, as it would be in a regular year, the month in which not only do we have to increase in joy and happiness, but we also have right in the middle of the month, in fact, two weeks from tonight, we celebrate the Chag, the big festival, the beautiful festival of Purim. And of course, the impact of that is great and wonderful and is felt throughout the month. But tonight is actually the beginning of Rosh Chodesh. It will be the beginning of the 30th day of the month of Adar Rishon. And tomorrow, tomorrow night and the next day will be the first day in the month of Adar Sheni, the second Adar and the Adar which is the one that precedes um, uh, the month of Nisan. And therefore, when Purim comes along, it is exactly a month to go to Pesach. So from today, six weeks um, left before we celebrate Pesach and our true Ke'ula, redemption from Mitzrayim, redemption from Egypt. But let's first focus, if we can, on Rosh Chodesh, because Rosh Chodesh itself is a very, very powerful and important time. Now, there are are a number of changes that we make to our tefillot, to our prayers over the time of Rosh Chodesh. First and foremost, we do not say tacharun. There are no penitential prayers. Now, penitential prayers are usually not said on days of simcha, on days of joy. As we know, we don't say penitential prayers, tacharun, um, at a wedding or a day of a bris and so on. We also do not say those uh, penitential prayers, those tacharun prayers, are not said on the Chagim, on the Yomim Tovim, but we also don't say them on some of the sadder days, on the days like Tisha B'Av or Amona during the week of Shiva, does not say Tachanun, does not say those penitential prayers, you do not say them in a house of mourning and so on. So there is something about them being completely inward focused, I think, um, in a, the idea of actually at times having to defer to not only the greater good, but having to look at the level of simcha within the community and having to defer to that um, is one of the underlying rules behind the saying of tachanun. It is something <coughs> of a communal behavior um, that is dictated by the simcha, by the joy. And certainly when it comes to the days of 
uh, Rosh Chodesh, where tonight and tomorrow, tomorrow night and the next day are Rosh Chodesh, we too do not say Tachanun. We're focused on the Simcha that this um, time heralds, rather than focusing just inwardly, just focusing on ourselves and our own penitence or our own gaining of exoneration from the Almighty. Now, we therefore take a look at the day before. Erev Rosh Chodesh usually does have an element of that kind of uh, penance, of an opportunity to uh, repent, to say that we're sorry. At sometimes uh, the day before Rosh Chodesh is called Yom Kippur Katan, a little Yom Kippur. There are many people who fast on such a day. But... Um, the days of Rosh Chodesh, lift that all, change that all, and make them into days of Simcha. And how much more so when we're talking about the transitional time between Adar Rishon and Adar Sheni, the first Adar and the second Adar. It's this uh, junction point between Adar 1 and Adar 2. It's a time when we need to doubly perhaps increase in our joy or perhaps to look at joy from a slightly different perspective and perhaps to focus on the pending coming up beautiful Chag, the beautiful festival of Purim, time of great and wonderful miracles, uh, great and wonderful things that happened for the Jewish people. Now, when we focus on the um, idea of Rosh Chodesh, in addition to the fact that we do not say Tachanun, we also do add in Hallel. We say Hallel. We say the prayers of great joy and, and euphoria and over our relationship with the Almighty, the Hallel prayers, praising God for all the wonderful things that He has done for us. And this happens on all of the Chagim, all of the special festive occasions, as well as on Rosh Chodesh. And in addition to Hallel, we also say a Musaf prayer. We pray uh, the additional services, which are said on the first and the second days of Rosh Chodesh, so both Thursday and Friday, we'll be saying those special Musaf prayers because of the Musaf, the additional offering that was brought in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple. Um, in temple times, an additional offering brought for the Chagim, for the festivals, and of course, for this Chag, this festival of Rosh Chodesh. So it's a great time, and it's a time, if we think about the idea of an extra sacrifice being brought in the Beit HaMikdash, it's an extra opportunity to connect, an extra time to feel a little closer to the Almighty, an extra time to focus on what Rosh Chodesh actually is all about, heralding and announcing the arrival of a new lease on life, of a new opportunity, of a new opportunity, particularly with this month of joy, of simcha, of a positive outlook, of looking at things in a positive frame of mind rather than um, in a negative one, which unfortunately seems to sometimes dominate us just a little bit too much. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We're continuing our discussion about the um, Rosh Chodesh and the upcoming month of Adar Sheni. And perhaps here we'll shift our focus a little bit to the Chag, to the special festival of Purim, about which there is so much that can be said. But I'd like to focus our attention in the preparation for Purim now two weeks before Let's think about where this festival actually fits into the Jewish calendar in a spiritual sense, what its deeper significance and meaning is actually all about, and how perhaps it can and should have a great and important bearing 
on our lives and on events of the last few days and uh, events in a crazy world in a time when things once again seem to be a little uncertain where uh, there are um, people fighting wars which we we kind of thought I certainly felt that we'd reached a level whereby war was no longer going to be a means of sorting out differences or problems or issues but it seems that other people have different ideas um, it seems to be very very uh, last century kind of thinking um, or before that to actually have to go to war thought we had moved moved away from that but be that as it may let's think about is there a message within Purim that we could perhaps bring to bear to reflect upon and to think about um, what is actually going on in our lives and in the world per se. Let's begin by just thinking back to the structure of the Jewish calendar. And I'm not going to go into the details of everything to do with the Jewish calendar, but just one point that I would like to make, and that is that Pesach comes at the beginning of the cycle of festivals of that particular year. And the whole group of festivals right the way up until Simchat Torah are actually um, one block. It moves together from the first day of Pesach until Simchat Torah is a set number of days. It is exactly the same. It works on the same grid year after year after year. It always will be. It always has been exactly like that. If we just pause for a moment and think what that actually means, well, just think about this. The first night of Pesach, the 14th of Nisan, so the 15th of Nisan is the beginning of Pesach. The second night of Pesach, we start to count the Omer, Svirata Omer. We count 49 days, and on the 50th day is Shavuot. That is always like that. So Pesach, from the beginning, until Shavuot, which is um, seven weeks later is an exact number of days. It fits exactly onto the same grid every single year. We then go from from Shavuot through to um, Yom Kippur is 120 days. How do we know that? <clears throat> it's because Moshe Rabbeinu went up the mountain and was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He then spent 40 days and 40 nights after um, he broke the first set of tablets um, in trying to gain exoneration, tshuva, for the Jewish people. <clears throat> he then ascended the mountain again on Rosh Chodesh Elul to come back down with the second set of tablets on Yom Kippur, which was a 40-day and 40-night period later. So you've got 120 days from Shavuot to Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah is always exactly 10 days before Yom Kippur. It's the first and the second of the month, Yom Kippur the 10th of Tishrei. We then have a four-day gap after Yom Kippur to Sukkot, and Sukkot, of course, is always seven days, and then the day of Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day, and the ninth day being Simchat Torah. If we haven't proved that point there, well, I think you need to just look at it and understand that from the first day of Pesach until Simchat Torah is a set grid. The first day of Pesach will kind of dictate a tremendous amount about every festival, every Chag that follows on thereafter. And this is probably why when God gives us the instruction of that this should be the first of your months when we come to the 
Shabbat preceding Rosh Chodesh or on Rosh Chodesh Nisan that we read that first instruction to the Jewish people about having to have a calendar that runs according to the moon and of course takes into account the seasons when it comes to Pesach as well, that it was that month and the, the month in which Pesach occurs that has to set the tone for the rest of the year. Now there are two Chagim, two festivals that were not included between Pesach and Simchat Torah, if we take all of the Chagim together. And those are, of course, Purim and Chanukah. Chanukah, which we celebrated a number of weeks ago, which always occurs in this part of the world in the summer. It's usually a December-based uh, festival. That festival of Chanukah is um, a festival that was added later. And when I say later, it's not um, uh, defined directly in the Torah itself, that on this day you should do this and do that and bring offerings and so on. That is Hanukkah, the eight days of candle lighting, which that takes place in December. And of course, what it commemorates is something that was post-biblical era as well, because we were talking about the time of the temple with the menorah that uh, burned for eight days instead of the one and so on, and the triumph of the Maccabees um, at the time over the Assyrian Greeks who wanted to bring about their um, influence and destruction in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel, and to the Beit HaMikdash, to the temple. So when we think about Hanukkah, it falls out of that ambit. And when we think about Purim, Purim itself falls out of that ambit as well, because Purim took place much later as well. It took place actually between the two Bate Mikdash, between the two temples, and that was with the story of Ahasuerus and Haman and Mordechai and so on. And of course, it took place in Persia, it took place in Babylon, time of the Babylonian exile. And just before, we had uh, permission to actually go back and begin the construction of the Beit HaMikdash Hasheni and the second temple. So both of these festivals, Hanukkah and Purim, fall out of that definite grid, that definite framework. But when it comes to Purim, we're told that Purim needs to be exactly one month before Pesach. The way that it's expressed by our sages in the Talmud is Nismach Ke'ula Ligula. It comes in the, in, the, in the discussion about if Purim should be in the first or the second Adar, it's made very clear that it needs to be in the second one. It needs to be close to Pesach. Why? Because there are two different kinds of Ge'ula, two different kinds of redemption that Purim and Pesach in turn speak about or uh, that they um, involve themselves with or that they are reflective of. And there is the idea of having them follow one another only a month apart. And so Purim will occur on the 14th of Adar, Pesach on the 14th and 15th of, um, of Nisan, and that needs to be one month apart. And there we get our idea of Purim being in the second of these months. So in a sense, Purim too has a link to Pesach as well, and has a link, therefore, to this grid that I was talking about. Hanukkah is the one that's a little bit loose in that sense. It um, actually can um, end on different dates, even in the calendar, because in the middle of Hanukkah is Rosh Chodesh, um, where there can be one or two days of Rosh Chodesh, the months of Cheshvan and Kislev, where there can sometimes be an extra date an extra day, and therefore it is not always exactly the same distance, sometimes a day out um, in distance from Pesach, um, um, and, and therefore it's kind of more of a 
free range type of a, a Chag Hanukkah that uh, happens in December, as we said. But if we think about these two festivals, both of them that came to us and were instituted as festivals, Chagim, that the Jewish people celebrate and we always have since their occurrence, they both focus, or they, the two of them focus on some things that are very different. Yes, both of them, we see a similar kind of a theme, that there was um, a group of people or a nation or an individual who wanted to destroy the Jewish people and uh, wanted to destroy something um, is, is, is absolutely essential to an understanding of the difference between Hanukkah and Purim and what they commemorate, what we think about when we think about Hanukkah and Purim. Hanukkah which, as we said, occurred during the time of the Assyrian Greeks and the story of Hanukkah t taking place as it did with the Beit HaMikdash, that still had a connection to the temple in a direct way. Purim occurred, happened outside of Israel in the diaspora. It happened in Babylon, the whole story of Purim. But there is something more important. And that is, when it came to the Assyrian Greeks, the story of Hanukkah, what they wanted to do was they wanted to take away the soul of the Jewish people. They were bent on the de destruction of the spirituality of Judaism. The Assyrian Greeks wanted to make everything down to earth and rational and logical and purify and glorify the body, the material world, the physical. That was the focus of the Assyrian Greeks. They didn't want or they defied or they said there was it was nonsense when we think about or we talk about things of miraculous nature when we think about things of a, a godly nature they said no everything is down to earth it's physical you're here this is your life the time that you're born and the time that you die that defines it all and it's all about the physical physical pleasures physical enjoyment physical prowess physical strength and so on that is actually what um, the Assyrian Greeks wanted to try and assert and it was the triumph over that a proof of the fact that the menorah burnt for um, the eight days, a proof of the fact that um, the few could triumph over the many um, because we had God on our side. This was uh, the uh, counterbalance or the counteraction to what it was that the Assyrian Greeks wanted to assert. When it came to Purim, Homon and his ilk wanted to destroy the bodies of the Jewish people. They wanted to destroy us physically. And if we think about it, then it is actually a very, very physical kind of a festival that we celebrate on Purim. We are celebrating the uh, uh, fact that our bodies, that our physical was not destroyed. They threatened us, um, Haman and his people, the Persians. There was a threat against our physical well-being. They wanted us to die. They did not want Jews to live. They wanted to carry out a, uh, a mass murder. They wanted to carry out a uh, holocaust. They wanted to see to the complete um, destruction of and wiping off the face of the map of the Jewish people wherever they may be. This was what they were bent on. And so our uh, celebration and our commemoration is hardly one that is very um, – uh, spiritual, uh, other than the spiritual things that we imbibe, that we drink in order to get us into the state that we're told to be in on Purim, which is Adaloyado, where we do reach a level whereby we don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed be is Mordechai. We um, have 
a much more down-to-earth, a much more physical way of celebrating. Think about it. We celebrate by eating a meal. We celebrate by drinking. We celebrate by giving food gifts to others. We give physical money to other people. We uh, make sure that all of those things that are done on Purim are actually very, very physical. And it's fascinating when we think about And we go just a little deeper and we think about what it actually was that the Assyrian Greeks were trying to assert and what that Chag, what that festival actually is truly all about when we think about Hanukkah and what the Persians were trying to assert when we think about, and Oman trying to assert when we think about Purim. Well, let's perhaps phrase it in the following way. When it comes to Hanukkah, the festival of Hanukkah was all about the Assyrian Greeks telling us that rational thinking is the most important thing. Logic, um, being absolutely down to earth, understanding um, how science operates, seeing to the power and the strength of the physical, of the material world. This is actually what they wanted to assert. It was based in good, logical, scientific thinking Rather than um, what they perceived to be nonsense, the idea of there being a spiritual world, the idea of there being a soul, the idea of um, there being miracles, that was what their focus was on. The focus of the Assyrian Greeks was to kind of bring us down to earth, make us rational, logical, uh, physical creatures, physical human beings kind of wipe out of our frame of reference anything that had to do with anything of the spirit of the neshama of the soul this was actually the thought of the Assyrian Greeks when it comes to Purim and it comes to the story of Haman Haman and his ilk went a little bit different if we think about the very name of this festival it's called Purim Purim is lots what did Haman do He was so caught up with the destruction of the Jewish people that he wanted to get into the realm of, let's call it, the madness. He wanted to uh, reach even higher than the logical. They say, you know what? Logic is not going to be good enough here. I want to try and uh, get an image or a vision of the fact that even beyond and above logical, even when we go into the realm of Uh, of craziness, when we go into the realm of the illogical, when we go into the realm of what we would call today random, the randomness of everything. That was where Haman wanted to spend his time focusing on getting that kind of a realm to dictate that the Jewish people should be destroyed. This is what he did. He drew lots to try and prove in a way that even the random, never mind the logical, but even the random is on his side. And he thought that he got there, and he almost did, except for the fact that he made a great, great, great miscalculation. And uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We've been talking about Purim and Hanukkah and the Chagim and how they all line up and how they, how they all convey a kind of a different message, talking to our spiritual selves. And let's think about the idea that Purim is called Purim, which means lots or lotteries. Now, there are many people who would say that life is a lottery. There are many people who would say that, you know, um, it's everything is random. From a Torah perspective, from a Jewish point of view, 
it is the very antithesis of that. There is nothing random in God's world. There is nothing random in everything that Hashem does or allows to happen. If we look at things and we think of them as being random, that randomness is something that is really conveyed by the name of this festival, Purim. When it came to Hanukkah, there was the logic. There was the idea of getting everybody to be down-to-earth, rational, thinking, material, physical people. When it came to Purim, Haman tried to elicit the spiritual worlds to try and convey his um, obscene kind of a down-to-earth message of the fact that a certain people, namely the Jewish people, needed to be wiped out. And there was the serious backfire on, on Haman when it came to um, his drawing of those lots because he was so excited when he picked out the lot um, saying that it would be in the month of Adar that the destruction of the Jewish people would be decreed and would actually come into force because he saw that God, so to speak, was on his side. Look at the, even the random world is coming to the fore here. The randomness of the lottery that he drew told him that the month of Adar was the time when Moshe Rabbeinu and Moses died. And because Moses died in that month, so the greatest Jewish leaders lost in that time. Of course, it's got to be a really, really sad time. The Jewish people are now uh, abandoned by God, clearly. And it's happening at the same time. Their abandonment by God is happening at exactly the same time that he, so to speak, abandoned them with the loss of Moshe Rabbeinu of Moses in the desert. What he failed to recognize say our sages, is of course that Moshe was born in the month of Adar as well, and that the Jewish people do not focus on the death of Moshe Rabbeinu as being an end, but rather a beginning, the beginning of our advent to the land of Israel, the beginning of the leadership of uh, Yoshua, and the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu remained in the desert in order to lead his people back when Mashiach comes was just another part of that same story. So the idea of Purim was something that Haman wanted to use, that he and his ilk wanted to use to prove that the randomness of the world would also dictate that the Jewish people needed to be destroyed. And what a miscalculation he made. Why? Because there is nothing random. Because the same way as God wanted the Jewish people to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, God wanted the Jewish people to understand and to know and to be the living proof of the fact that everything is um, by God's divine plan rather than there being a randomness to it at all. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So as we align our lives with a Rosh Chodesh, which is about to begin this evening, and we think about the uh, terrible, terrible um, threats against lives in a part of the world that is distant from us geographically, but close to us because there are hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who at this moment are under threat in uh, the Ukraine and uh, that part of the world. And our thoughts and prayers are certainly with them at this difficult time. And we think about Am Yisrael Chai of the Jewish people uh, living and flourishing and being united. And therefore, as we pray and as we give tzedakah on their behalf and as we learn Torah on their behalf, let's think about the fact that there is actually nothing random in God's world. The fact that the negative things happen 
and hopefully very, very soon, the positivity. We hope and pray that uh, we're going to look at this as another Adar and Purim miraculous time rather than a time of uh, negativity, God forbid, or a time of difficulty on any any level whatsoever. Let's hope and pray that very, very soon we see what we are supposed to see by this festival of Purim. Purim meaning lottery. There is nothing random. The randomness that uh, um, the festival of Purim t- uh, instructs us and wants us to tap into is that we are all very, very well equipped to understand that um, when great miracles, where wonderful things happen and where things go swimmingly, where everything goes perfectly, that, of course, God is on our side. But what we are not that well equipped to understand is the fact that when there seem to be things that are random, when there seem to be things that are not that well coordinated or that well organized, where things don't go actually as we have over the last few years really seen according to plan, where plans are changed at the last minute, that there is nothing random about that either. There is nothing random, in fact, in this world. The fact that As our sages have taught us that a leaf falls in a particular spot um, from a tree, that too is not random. It is by design. And that God's design for this world goes far, far, far deeper than we could ever have imagined. We can imagine, we can think about it being in uh, our choices of uh, who we marry or where we live or uh, what we do for a living and so on. We can think about that as being all part of this great design. But when random, so-called accidental, incidental things happen, it's not so easy to see. The festival of Purim tells us, be happy and be satisfied and rest assured that even the things that we perceive to be random are not random at all. It's all part of God's design. And the same way as God allowed, enabled, um, sad and difficult and tough and stressful things to take place, he also is the one who very, very soon will see to the gula, the redemption. May it come speedily in our time, not only for those who are in a position of threat and of difficulty at this on this particular day, but may it please God come for all of us in the same way as everything was turned around in the festival of Purim and that the days of sadness or the days of st- stress and the days on which we thought we were going to be destroyed became the days of our greatest success, the days of our greatest joy and happiness. And please, God, that will happen for all of us very, very soon with the coming of Mashiach immediately. It's been great chatting with you this afternoon. I look forward to being back with you. Please, God, in the very near future on another exciting episode of Judaism 101.9.